0: Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have April Dunford, a product positioning consultant and author of Obviously Awesome. April helps startups position their products so that their customers get it, buy it, and love it. We chatted about the definition of positioning and what it is and isn't. We also discussed how positioning impacts customer churn and the common mistakes startups make when positioning their products. April also shared the three styles of positioning your product in a market, how positioning feeds your messaging, and how you can tell when you have a positioning problem. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. If you have any feedback, I'd love to hear from you, and you can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. This is churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth.
1: How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn.
0: You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable and growing. Strategies, tactics and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, April, welcome to the show. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So obviously, I think, as you know, I reached out to a friend, uh, Louis Grenier, who's also a fellow podcaster, and he's the host of Everyone Hates Marketers, which, by the way, if anyone's listening, is uh, an excellent podcast. I highly recommend. It's a no-fluff, actionable marketing podcast. Uh, but anyway, uh, I reached out to him to ask uh, for recommendations for the show, and his first response was, speak to April. She is awesome. Like, there uh, that was the treat. So <laughs> Uh, I, I definitely trust a lot what you has to say, and I'm really excited that you decided to join us today on the topic uh, that we'll be discussing, because I think it's one of those things that has a massive impact on churn, uh, but I think it's something that early stage startups really think to look at. Um, so just for the listeners as well, to give a little bit of a background, April, uh, I know that you ran marketing or marketing activities for Janna Systems that was acquired by Siebel for over $1.7 billion. In the early yeah. days, like helping growing the revenue from a million to 70 plus. In under 18 months, you've spent time at companies like Oracle, IBM, Huey, and been a founder and entrepreneur yourself. Um, you're also an author of Obviously Awesome, which is uh, how to nail product positioning so customers get it, buy it, and love it. Uh, and is the topic that I'd love to start discussing today with you. So, uh, product positioning. Uh, why do you think it's critical, and uh, what are some of the things you see that startups get wrong?
1: Yeah, so positioning is interesting. It's it's not a new concept. It's an old concept. It was it's been around since the late seventies, but it is really misunderstood, in in my opinion. So positioning, the way I define it, is um, positioning defines how your product is the best in the world at doing something that a defined set of customers cares a lot about so it's not the same as messaging it's not a tagline it's not branding uh, it's not some people say oh positioning is just everything we do in marketing it's not it actually touches sales most of those things flow from positioning but positioning a good way to think about it is it's if, if marketing and sales are the house positioning is the foundation upon which the house is built I have to figure out why my product is different and better than other offerings on the market. I have to figure out what the value is that my product delivers. And importantly, I have to figure out what customers care the most about that value before I can do any of that stuff, before I can do messaging, before I can build campaigns, before I can do anything. I have to have that stuff clear. Now, the mistake that I see most companies make, particularly startups, is They don't understand the concept of positioning, and as a result, they kind of fail to position their product deliberately. So what I mean by that is, you know, the founders get an idea in their head and they say, hey, we're going to build this thing and it's like email and we're going to build better email. And then they get it out and customers say, oh, I like this stuff. I don't like that stuff. They take things out. They put things in. Meanwhile, the whole market itself is changing. So competitors are taking things in and out of their products, too. And you fast forward a couple of years and maybe your email actually looks more like chat or team collaboration or something else but the founders have always thought of it as email the change mm-hmm. happened gradually over a couple of years so they've got this kind of default position in their mind and the poor customers are getting it and they're like what i don't i don't think that's email at all it's super confusing what the heck is this thing and if it's email it's crappy email like why does anybody <laughs> want this thing and so because of this and so the big again the big problem i see startups make is this sort of default positioning instead of ever checking back in in the positioning and saying, is there a better context we could wrap around this product that would make the unique differentiated value of it more obvious to the folks that we now know that we're selling to? Like, could we contextualize the whole thing better than the way we're doing it today?
0: Yeah, I I definitely see what you're saying as well, is that founders have this vision in their mind of what the product is and what it's going to be. And and yeah. I uh, think that's what the market perceives it to be. And that's what they try to go out and calling it. Uh, itself. So, so typically like you mentioned as well, definitely like that uh, positioning is the foundation and sales with marketing would sit on top of this. And that's where all sort of your uh, taglines and marketing campaigns and sales pitches would feed off of um, yeah. when we think about positioning now, like, how would you go about advising a startup or company wanting to get started positioning their product right? Like what would be some of the first steps that you would want to look at?
1: Yeah, so there's a handful of things. So the positioning itself, um, it, it, part of the reason why people don't do it is because there isn't really an accepted methodology for getting it done. And this vexed me for a long time as a vice president of marketing who was doing a lot of repositioning of products. I'm like, what, we don't have a process for this. Like, how can that be, how can we have a thing that's so fundamental And yet there's no process. So the process I learned was something called a positioning statement, which is one of the stupidest business ideas I think I've ever come across. The positioning statement is really like this kind of mad libs exercise. Like you have this statement and you fill in the blanks and the things you're filling in are like your market category, uh, who your competitors are, what your differentiators are, what your value is. The problem is Is each of those things is actually really hard to figure out and the positioning statement exercise doesn't give you any hints how to you know how to put something in the blank and so what I learned very quickly is that almost any product you give me I could position it in multiple different market categories so how do I pick the best one positioning statement doesn't give me any clues how to do that so In my own mind, the way you want to do positioning is the first step, if what we're trying to do is get at differentiated value, you have to understand what you're differentiating against. So meaning I have to understand that what my customers and not any customer, my best customers, my customers that love me, my customers that don't turn on me, my customers that recommend me, who do they compare me to? And again, lots of people get this wrong, where they'll say, oh, we're a startup, and our competitors, and they'll list 900 little startups that nobody's ever heard of, and they're two guys in the valley or something, and yeah. they'll say, well, we're better than all those guys, because we have way nicer UI, or, you know, we have these four little features. But then you go talk to their really, really good customers, and you say, hey, what would you use if this thing didn't exist? What would you do? And they'll say things like, oh, i just put it in an Excel spreadsheet. Or uh, I just hire an intern to do it. And so you might be differentiating against the wrong thing. So if I'm comparing myself to other startups and I say, "Ooh, I'm super easy to use, but you're not, right? You're not easier to use than an intern. Intern's super easy to use. Like, Joey, fill out the spreadsheet. (laughs) Tell me when you're done. (laughs) So the first thing you have to do is understand who your best customers are and then understand who your customers compare you to, like what is the actual competitive comparable? Once you have that, then you can say, okay, uh, if that's the comparison, here are the features and capabilities that I have that the competitive comparable does not. And that's usually a giant long list of things. And then what you have to do is map those features to value. So, um, and that usually themes out into a couple of themes. And the, the value is the answer to like, so what? for a customer, like, so you have all these features. Why does a customer care? What is the value that that delivers for um, your end buyer? And then once you have the value, then you can do this segmentation exercise where you say, okay, this is the value we deliver that's special and unique. And there's probably a large universe of people that kind of care about that, but only a smaller universe of people that really, really, really care a lot. And the question you have to ask yourself is, what are the characteristics of a customer that makes them really put a high price on that value. And those are your best fit customers. So, um, and that's how you do a, a segmentation. And then the last piece of this is this customer category thing, which is if I'm trying to pick a market category that really works for my product, another way of thinking of that is, it's the best context I can position my product in that makes my differentiated value absolutely obvious to my best fit customers. So you have to go through the process and you have to go through it in the right order, which is, you know, I described this in like 9,000 gory details in the actual book. Yeah. But that's what the book describes is that step-by-step process, starting with competitive comparables all the way down to a market category. That's, I think, how you should be doing
0: it. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting because I, I think as well, just even starting with um, competitive comparables, I think this is definitely, I see this happen time and again. I've made the mistake myself as well in a previous startup where you look at the competition and you think that's your competitive comparable. But in actual fact, you're actually comparing and you're fighting against old habits or old ways and right. uh, that people have been doing and Uh, Your product actually needs to try and be 10x better than their current habits or their current place. Otherwise, uh, you're in the wrong place to begin with. Yeah,
1: otherwise you're in the wrong place, right? Because they're just fine with string and gum and manual processes. (laughs) (laughs) And so your thing has to be way better than that because that has all the advantage of, well, it's pretty easy. We've been doing this forever. It's not hard. And switching to your thing actually is a pain
0: requires effort.
1: So, so tell me why it's worth the effort to do that, to use your thing.
0: Absolutely. So uh, I mentioned like in the beginning. obviously I think uh, having like a really solid positioning is one of those things that has the biggest impact on churn, And it's one of the things people don't actually realize is because a lot of the times you have this misalignment in terms of what the promise fit is and what you're promising your customers that your service will deliver and what it actually uh, yeah. does at the end of the day. Um, when it comes to sort of working with the startups that you work with, like how often do you see that this misalignment's happening? So you mentioned uh, like people come and as founders have this vision to begin with, but then two years down the line, it's totally different. Like what are some of the things that you would walk through startup founders when you get to that point and you realize that, wait a second, like your product has changed. The market has changed. It's time to change your positioning.
1: Right. So some of the things you'll see, um, you know, when the when the companies come to me, like there's there's a handful of things that I would call like symptoms of weak positioning. So uh, so usually they come to me and what they think they got is a marketing problem or a sales problem. And they'll say, we have this thing. And when customers get it, they love it and they use it and they, they never leave us but it takes an awful long time for them to figure out what it is. And depending on the sales process, sometimes they don't figure it out until after they've actually bought, (laughs) which is bad. (laughs) And then once they get it and they start thinking like at some point the light comes on and they're like, oh, you're this. And that's either good news or bad news. (laughs) Either love it and they're like, oh, great, it's this, fantastic. That's just what I wanted. Or it's, oh, crap, it's this. That's not what I wanted at all. Um, And so you'll see that you'll see it impact your entire, entire funnel all the way out through to churn. So if you're telling me that your system is a CRM, then I'm going to expect it to do things like a CRM does, right? Yeah. I'm going to expect that there's table stakes functionality in there that's like a CRM. And if you don't have that, then you're going to have to make that super apparent to me before I sign up <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because otherwise you've set the expectation that it's there and then it's not. So like I, I worked with a company that described themselves as email and really what their secret sauce was, was, was more file sharing. And so I would call that team collaboration because file sharing is what I, you know, it's what I, one of the major things I buy team collaboration for. And yeah. their issue was they were positioning as an email, which was okay, except Nobody expects, nobody buys email to solve a file sharing problem generally. The other thing was that they didn't have a calendar. So they're telling people their email and everyone's like, great, I got the new email. But you can't actually get rid of the old email because there's no calendar in this thing. So you can't replace the email you've got. And, you know, if you ask me what's an email without a calendar, it, it's kind of crappy email. <laughs> so, so no no wonder they would have churn there. No wonder they would have disappointed customers. There's an expectation when you tell me it's email, there's some table stakes things that if it doesn't do that I'm gonna expect that it does, and I'm gonna be super disappointed that it's not there. So if the positioning is out of alignment, I think you're gonna get this mismatch between expectations and reality, and that gap is gonna cause you pain. It's it's gonna be churn and it's gonna be people dropping out of your sales funnel midway through when they really when they actually figure it out it means you're gonna have poor fit customers coming in the very beginning of the funnel and your sales and marketing team waste a lot of time and effort trying to close people that you know that shouldn't even be it's in your funnel there. in the first place
0: yeah absolutely uh, and then as well I think something that you said as well it like just got me thinking a little bit is that different stages of the company so uh, you start out with a vision uh, in the beginning you set it out you start running your positioning and you start working from there uh, two years later different product, but two years later yeah. you're potentially after a different market as well um, sure. and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on how positioning needs to evolve as your market uh, and your demographic evolves with it so if we think about like your early adopters and going into sort of the early majority or uh, Lady majority, like do you see positioning as something that's constantly evolving and needs to be adapting to the market? And if so, like, how do you go about making sure that you're keeping up with this change?
1: Yeah, I think it's really it's really important to be checking in on your positioning at regular intervals because it naturally changes. It doesn't always change, is the thing, but sometimes it does. Then you don't know whether it should change or not unless you're checking in. So um I, I was on a I had a conversation with some folks a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about, they said, so, you know, you ever check back on a product that you positioned and see, has it changed? And I said, I do that all the time. <laughs> and some of them have radically changed and some of them haven't changed a bit. In fact, the first product I worked on straight out of university, I worked on a product and we repositioned it from like a personal single user database. that was kind of competitive with Microsoft Access. And we ended up repositioning it as an embeddable SQL database for mobile devices. And that product exists today. Like this is a long time ago too, I'm old. So that product exists today. We got acquired and then that company got acquired again. It exists today. It's like a billion-dollar business unit, and that positioning is not that much different. Like they're talking a lot more about Internet of Things, but it's still an embedded database for mobile devices hasn't changed a bit. Where I have worked on other ones, where you know we did the positioning, we're convinced it's genius. It is genius, <laughs> but four months later, well, wait, we, I had one where we did this positioning. It was so good. We had a patent on a thing. It was totally defensible, our differentiated thing. You could copy it. We owned it. Um, We came to market. Everyone loved it. And literally, like six months later, this new competitor came into the market. They had 10 times the funding that we had. So, you know, they had all kinds of money to burn. And they had a patent. It was not the same as ours, it was completely different, obviously. But the result of what they could do with that patented thing was the exact same thing as ours. Like, like it yeah. was just, you got the same result, doing it a totally different way. So six months, we had this genius positioning, we're great aces for six months. And then six months later, we're like, whoops. <laughs> we're going to have to actually reposition this thing because we can't beat them. They're bigger than us. They got more money than us. The CEO was this famous database guy. Like it was, it was a disaster. And we had to kind of retrench and reposition. So over time, you have to expect that your product changes, the competitive landscape changes even the attitude of your buyers change, you know, sometimes you'll have things like the economy changes and that changes the way, you know, how much people will pay for things and how much emphasis they put on, you know, revenue versus cost cutting and things like this. So your buyers are changing too. So I usually recommend that you have to kind of check in at least every six months and kind of take the pulse on it and see like, is this really still our big differentiator? Is this really still why we win? Are are we still bumping into the same competitors we've always bumped into, or has that shifted? Um, Is there something that's changed about the way our buyers evaluate things, or is it the same as it was before? And, and be prepared that, you know, it might shift and it might shift a lot and that's okay. That's normal. You know, that's okay and normal, or it might not shift at all. You might have a thing that, you know, like my first one, 25 years later, (laughs) it's (laughs) still a database for mobile devices. Um, And it's doing okay as far as I can tell.
0: Yeah. It's like, sort of like, don't be precious with your positioning as well. Be willing to evolve and adapt. Uh, I think as well, what you said is, is another thing is that like, with positioning, typically, like in the beginning, you, you think of it as a way as like how you see your product, but really that's not what positioning is at all. It's like how your customers see your product. Um, and yeah. so, how when you goes about like positioning and some of the things, so we've talked a little about like making sure you know who your customer is, like that initial market, what the value is. How do you go about then sort of figuring out how you position yourself in the specific uh, vertical or what the specific value is, like what is your process there once you've identified like that corner of the market that you're going after?
1: Yeah. So in my mind, there's, um, there's kind of three styles of positioning. So in a market, so you can either position yourself in an existing market or you can attempt to create a brand new market. And so those are those are both very different. If you are positioning yourself in an existing market, you have two different ways you can do that. So you can either position directly head to head against the current leader in that existing market. And that'd be like saying, we're getting into the CRM business and we're taking out Salesforce. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we're going to do. And and this is usually a bad idea because you're small and crappy and just got going and Salesforce is very big and, and established and, They have a lot of things going for them. And so it's going to be very hard to unseat them if you say, no, we're going to take those guys out. So instead what you usually do, if the market is established and the competitor is, is very established that owns that market, then a better thing to do is to say, you know what, I'm going to look for a piece of the market that is underserved by the market leader that I can serve better. And I'm just going to go win in that corner. And then once I've dominated my little niche or my corner of the market, then I'm going to start to push on the boundaries of that market until it's bigger and bigger and take on adjacent little corners of the market until eventually I get big and then I can take on you know, Salesforce Salesforce. and the CRM market or whatever once I'm big enough to do it. The only time where you might want to go into an existing market and take on the whole thing is if the market exists in the minds of the customers, but... Uh, but, there is no clear market leader today, so there are you know so there are some emerging markets that look like that, so you know I would argue like the smart glasses market is a little bit like that right now. there are yeah. you know, lots of players in that market um they're all interesting in different ways. Uh, lots of them are getting a little bit of traction here and there, but it's kind of a toss up. Like if you were to say to me, who's the leader in that market? Like mean, who dominates the smart glasses market? I don't actually know. But yeah. when you say smart glasses, I kind of get what you mean, right? And so, I, so we have a company here in Canada called North and they've done some smart glasses tech. It's really smart. And they are taking a run at being the leader in that thing. And it makes sense for them. They're well funded. They're smart guys. They've been doing this for a long time. And why not them? And so, and there isn't anybody else. So they can take a run at it and not sub segment it and say, no, we're going to be smart glasses for everybody for everything. Now, yeah. the third option is so you got take the leader head on. You got to take the leader, you know, dominate a niche. But then you got the third option, which is. I'm going to create, my thing is so special and weird and amazing and cool that no existing market can contain it (laughs) and I'm going to create a whole new market. And this is, this is the kind of strategy like Silicon Valley loves this one right now. I'll tell you, everybody, everybody that I talk to is like, no, we're, we're creating a new market. Um, sometimes i think companies say that but they're not actually doing that they're 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 creating a concept within an existing market but it's actually not a new market. market um sometimes you are creating a new market and um it's a it's a risky thing to do it takes time mainly because the reason the market doesn't exist is because people don't even know they got a problem because if they knew they had a problem there would be a category There'd of existing solutions to solve that uh, so if they don't know they have a if the market doesn't exist, that means customers don't know they have a problem, which means you're going to have to spend a significant amount of time and effort waking people up to the fact that they got a problem, which is education. It takes time. And so what you need is money and patient yeah. investors. Um, and so money and patient investors, you might actually survive through the period where you're educating the market that this should exist. And then you have to position yourself as a leader in this new market that you just created, which the payoff for that is great. um, But there's all sorts of pitfalls there too. Like you might spend a lot of time defining what that market is. And then at the last minute, a fast follower scoops in behind you and says, yeah, yeah, we're just like them, but better. And thanks for making that market for us. (laughs) We're now going to pop in when the market's ready and take it from you. Sort of MySpace versus Facebook kind of thing. Um, So creating a new market, again, it requires time, uh, patient investors, uh, big effort, and you're in it for the long run. Most of the time when a new market gets created, um, it's created by a company that has gone through the process of dominating a niche. They've now gotten big and they're like, you know what, we're going to extend the boundaries of the market or we're going to make up a new market and we're going to go get that. But they do it when they're hundreds of millions of revenue, not...
0: lots of money in the bank
1: six people in the co-working space
0: (laughs) and they got lots of money to fund it that was actually going to be my next question along those lines a little bit as well is that do you see like the impact of brand and like how well you are known in the markets like uh, how much brand recall you have like do you see that as an impact of like what your positioning should be and how you go about thinking about your product? So at an early stage, you're unknown. Um, you have some sort of expectations that you need to set with your positioning. Uh, when you yeah. start to build a brand and your household name, like how do you, when you're thinking about positioning for those two different scenarios, are there any sort of differences that you think about uh, in writing positioning and uh, coming up with it?
1: you know i think the positioning is the same it's it's how you execute on the positioning that changes because yeah. the scale of your execution has to be different like it like my focus has all been b2b so if it's b2c i don't know i don't know anything about b2c but yeah. for if you're selling to businesses at the beginning um you're usually doing a very um manually intensive sales process where you're, you're just picking off account by account by account just to get some customers under your belt and going. And then later when you have to scale that. Uh, so at the beginning, the brand doesn't matter that much because you're doing the heavy lifting of sort of busting into an account and forcing yourself in there and saying, hey, pay attention to me. You should buy my stuff. It's amazing. Yeah. But later when you're trying to do that at scale, it's way easier if everybody knows who you are and occasionally they call you now and then, or when your salesperson does call in, they've heard of you before. And so they're not starting from scratch. And so brand matters more Um, or at least brand awareness matters more. Yeah. Um, But if you're trying to do something that requires, you know, really big scale and really big brand awareness. Mainly, it doesn't impact the positioning that much, although obviously you're trying to position for a really big market segment because you're trying to go after like a really broad thing. Um, but it's more on the execution of it, right? It's it's more, uh, you know, It's like buckshot versus sniper (laughs) stuff, you know. I'm not going to these finely tuned targets. I'm just kind of trying to, you know, spray the land (laughs) with this thing and get as many as I can. In B2B, um, part of the reason why I like B2B is how focused you can get on particular markets and how focused you can be in your marketing and sales effort. And there's very little waste in it. So you get the more tightly you can define who it is I'm going after. And sometimes that's just writing down a list of accounts and then doing account based marketing to get right into the accounts that you're trying to reach. You can do this with very little waste. B2C, I don't do B2C, but, you know, the impression I get of B2C is there's a lot more sort of spray and pray. And I'm just trying to reach everybody. And it's a numbers game and I'm going to convert X number of people. That feels very inefficient to me as a B2B marketer. Absolutely. And and I don't under and I don't understand how people survive it, uh, doing stuff like that. But apparently it works because you know there's lots of B to C things that are successful. But um, that's a that's a piece of marketing that I don't understand, and I try to stay away from.
0: Yeah, it's definitely at least for me. I think B to B is the side that's the most the more interesting part of It's like, like you say, it can be a lot more predictable, a lot more focused. A lot we actually worse. make money. Like we make money. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's all these b to c things and they survive on venture backing or, or pixie dust or magic or something. <laughs> they, they don't actually make any money. You know, like yeah. I always have these conversations that business and consumer companies come to me and it's kind of a joke because I tell them, don't talk to me. You don't want to talk to me because yeah. you're going to pitch your B2C thing to me. And I'm going to pitch it back to you about how this would be a way better business to business business.
0: business. Yeah. And
1: so, you know, and it and it usually comes down to the math I'm doing in my head. Look, I could sell a million of these for a buck yeah. or I could sell one for a million dollars. And yeah, that's going to be a hard deal to close. Yeah, it might take me six or eight months to do it, but I only had to sell one. Yeah. <laughs> when you start saying, I got to sell a million of these for a buck, like my, you know, my brain starts sweating. I'm like, no, don't make me do it. I don't want to do that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So uh, talking about selling as well, then, and uh, we said like positioning is the base when it comes to your sales and marketing. Um, yeah. When it comes to sort of marketing then itself, and uh, like messaging of the products, uh, how like closely do you see positioning and messaging aligned? Um, and then sort of how does one feed the other?
1: Yeah so the you, so the first thing the first thing you do after positioning is usually messaging. Like the messaging is often the embodiment or the first embodiment of your positioning. Yeah. So it, but in order to do messaging you got to have the positioning first, right? Because I I need to understand what my value proposition is. I need to understand my differentiators. I need to understand who I'm talking to and I can't write messaging if I don't know who I'm talking to, so I need to understand that. And I need to understand my market category because I need to understand what I'm highlighting and who I'm comparing myself to and what the heck is this thing? So I kind of need to have the positioning done first, but the minute it's done, there's usually two things that you want to do immediately after. So the first is messaging. Um, Well, then it's not a one, two, both things have to happen and they usually happen at the same time. Messaging is one. The second one, I think you need to, you need to nail down is what I would call a sales narrative. And In the positioning workshops that I do with companies, we'll spend a day on the positioning stuff and then we can't do messaging as a team because that's super annoying and awful. I wouldn't recommend anybody do messaging as a group, Um, but as a group we can work through this sales narrative. And so the sales narrative sort of goes like this. And again, this is B2B. So in B2B, um, I need to take the positioning and translate it into a sales story, so, which is like, you know, if you don't know too much about my stuff, this is how I would explain it to you. And a 2 a sales narrative usually follows a common arc. It sort of starts with a, you talking about the problem, like, hey, I'm going to put some boundaries around the problem. Hey, customer, this is your problem, right? You have this problem and the customer goes, oh yeah, I got that problem. And then you say, well, this is how you're trying to solve it now, right? You're hiring interns, you're using some Excel, you're, you know, Staying up, yeah. nights and weekends, manual processes, right? The customer says, oh yeah, we're doing that. And here's why that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and then you list all the shortcomings of the current solution.
0: Yeah.
1: And then you shift to a description of your point of view of the market, which is kind of like a description of the perfect world where you say, look, if we knew, if we were to do this again from scratch and we were to build the perfect solution in a perfect world, this is what the characteristics of that solution would be. We'd be able to do this without this, you know, we'd have this without the annoyance of this, you know, and it, what you're doing is defining buying criteria for your category. Yeah. And hopefully the customer goes, yeah, I dig it. If, if, you're, if, if there was something that did all that stuff, you're right. I buy that thing. And then you go, oh, "Ho <laughs> have mm-hmm. I got a thing for you? And then you switch into the actual sales part where you say, well, that, that's, we believe that. So that's why we built this thing. And here's what it is. Here's the value. Here are the features that allow us to deliver that value. Here's the proof that we can deliver that value. I handle some objections. Then I ask for whatever I ask for next, either buy my thing or let's do a proof of concept or let's have another meeting, whatever it is. Yeah. So those are the two things that come right after positioning. You need positioning. Then you need to translate that into messaging and you need to translate it into sales narrative. With those three pieces, you can now do anything. Now I can build a marketing plan. Now I can build sales collateral. Now I can do the messaging for the homepage and all my campaigns and everything else. Um, but I kind of need those three things first. So positioning first, two things out of that is messaging and this and the sales narrative. Once I have those, I got everything I need to go build everything else.
0: Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And having those sort of three pillars in place, like I definitely, is pretty much the foundation of everything when it comes to marketing or sales. Yep, um, So I'm interested to hear your opinion then. Now, obviously, you've uh, had loads of experience in the space. we worked with so many different companies. Like in your opinion today in a B2B company, uh, maybe specifically SaaS, like who do you think is really nailing their positioning and why?
1: Um, Yeah. You know, it's, so it's often hard. So I get asked this question a lot, like who's got great positioning. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is if you are not the target buyer (laughs) for the product, you don't always know because all you're looking at is messaging and brand and whatever else. And, and if they were totally nailing it for a segment and you're not the segment, how the heck would you know? So I have favorites but they're generally ones that I've worked with. So I know all the guts of it. (laughs) So like, I know how, I know what it was before. And I know where, how they got to where they are right now. Like there's a client of mine, um, they're called Level Jump. And I did some work with them and I love their positioning right now because it's so clear, it's so beautiful. And it was hard to get there because they're in a really crowded space. So what these folks do is, they do sales enablement software uh, for, for growing sales teams. So you got new salespeople coming on board, you got new products you're releasing all the time. And I have to get those salespeople up to speed as fast as possible, and I need to get them trained and enabled so that they can get the quota fast, so they can ramp fast, so that they're making money, so that you know we recoup our investment in hiring them in the first place. And there are, like if you Google sales enablement, like this is a horrible market. There's all kinds of stuff in there, and there's all sorts of sub-segments within the segment, and, and it's terrible. And so when I first talked to these guys, you know, they they mapped this thing out on a whiteboard for me and it's like, oh, it's a nightmare. There's like 20 companies in there and they all call themselves sales enablement. And, you know, they all kind of look the same when in fact they're all super different. And yeah. what I like about level jumps positioning now is they basically have one really key differentiator. And the key differentiator is they are the only sales enablement platform that hooks directly into your sales data so you can measure if your enablement actually works. So their point of view on the market is this, right? Their point of view is, look, uh, you're not enabling your sales reps for fun or for a checklist on, you know, they did the course, check. You're enabling them because you wanna reduce your ramp time. You're enabling them because you wanna reduce time to first deal, time to make quota, all that stuff. They're the only tool where you can definitively measure whether or not your enablement did that. Yeah. So what I love about their positioning is it's so clear now. It's basically like, do you care about metrics on your enablement stuff? If the answer is no, then you can buy one of the other 9 million things out in this space. And in the yeah. fact, there's lots of them that are way, way cheaper. But if I pitch you and say, look, don't you actually want to measure this stuff? Like, don't you want to know time to ramp time to whatever? Like, it, Like, if you care about that, then we're the only game in town. And so I love that positioning because it's so clear, it's clearly differentiated. um, And it's it's a message that resonates very, very well with their target market, which are these fast growing, in a lot of cases, tech companies, that are hiring a lot of salespeople, but they're very concerned about time to ramp and all these metrics that these guys can give them. So it resonates super well with their target market. They're clearly differentiated in a market that's a mess. (laughs) And so I love them as a positioning example. It's just like, it's super clear. It was was hard to figure it out before, and now it's super easy, super easy. I I know exactly who it's for, I know exactly how you're different, I know exactly when you buy and when you wouldn't, it's just clean.
0: Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And I think uh, I made a little bit of a rookie mistake in asking you the question, which companies do, do you like? It no, it's should.
1: okay. Like, I'll, t- I'll, you know, I'll just tell you my favorites. It should,
0: it should, <laughs> that's what I was going to say. It should have been framed. <laughs> I should have framed it like of the products that you use, which uh, company has the best positioning.
1: Yeah. Like, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's maybe ones I could think of, like, you know, I really liked, um, the early days of Slack, I, it's very different now. Their positioning is is very different now because there's so much more mainstream now. Yeah. But at the beginning, they were, um, they were really positioned differently than I, like they were, they're a late comer into this market. I mean, there was Yammer, there were, there were all these things. There was that Salesforce chatter. Like there were lots of team collaboration tools in the market before Slack showed up. Yeah. But what I thought was really neat about their early positioning was um, was really all it was it was a lot of it was around culture and speed and eliminating email. And I think that that message around um, we want to get the team working better together. We need to do it really fast and we need to do it like faster than email. And don't you wish you could just get rid of email and have this kind of real time thing going all the time. So their early positioning, I thought, was really, really good that way. Now they're just, you know, they're like everything for everybody because they're the leader in the team collaboration space. So their positioning has to change now. And they're not getting rid of email. No one's getting rid of email. We all know that. It's a dream. (laughs) So now they integrate with email and all this other stuff. They don't bother saying but. But the you know for a lot of dev teams like they actually did kind of eliminate ninety percent of in company email yeah. between d- dev teams. But but now they're way bigger than dev teams and way bigger than everything else. So they can't say they're eliminating email, and they can't say they're about culture because they're for everybody now.
0: But, yeah, but I think it goes back to how we started the conversation though as well. Is understanding like who the competition really is right uh so like i just said they did a great job there of really focusing and targeting like the real competition which was email which was
1: email which nobody ever done like yammer never came out and said hey this is all about getting less email in your inbox like if they had said that people would have used it (laughs) 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 instead it was all like oh yeah this fluffy stuff about collaborating better and whatever whatever and it was all a bit vague but yeah. you come and you say like like email is a pain in the ass like i like i really yeah. want to get rid of email and even if you got rid of half of it i'm super happy now of course we know what we know now and what we know now is it, it's just it's still painful it's just now i got a different pain over here in the slack room just, yeah. <laughs> like this so where i got 19 slack channels that i'm that i'm way behind on or whatever and it's just as bad as email but you know but back then it was it was like we, they were selling the dream and the dream was you're going to fix my inbox problem. And I'm like, Oh, I want that. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I think it's all the same. Like what you're saying it makes it a lot of sense like the same problem exists now, but it's just in a different medium a different form. But people just really That's right. had that big issue with email itself, that it didn't really matter at the time. It was just like, okay, save me. for
1: Well, you. and they did, they did a great thing too. I thought, and I don't know whether it was deliberate, but the early traction for Slack was, um, little tech companies and the majority of that like where it got traction was the development team and like there's a bunch of people that i mean there's people that hate email and then there's people that detest email and and even if they sit right across from each other don't want to talk to anybody (laughs) and they would much sooner send you a message and so here you have the perfect early adopters for this thing And I never saw Yammer targeting development teams. I never saw any of those other team collaboration things. I never saw any of that. They were targeting sales teams or deal teams on an account and things like that. Totally different use case. Whereas Slack came out, and whether they did this deliberately or not, at the beginning, they were like, we're not going to have email anymore, and you still don't have to talk to anybody. Keep the headphones on keep staring at your screen, (laughs) talk to people. Perfect. It's what every developer wants. This is what they want. I don't have anybody interrupting me and I got to take my headphones on and get out of my flow and whatever. I I just want to have this thing go and have this thing be on another screen in the corner and I can glance at it once in a while. It's perfect for dev teams. And it's just a completely different entry point into the organization, you know, and they, and I think what they did was, was hit on that really well. And now of course, now they're in all organizations doing all kinds of teams doing all kinds of everything. And the positioning has to change.
0: Yeah. And I think like you said, I mean, they did so many things so well and that's why they've created one of the stickiest products in the world. Now at the moment is it's too, many- too sticky, too yeah. sticky. Yeah.
1: <laughs> 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 I loved it so much at the beginning and now, Oh
0: yeah. It's like it's- uh, nailing the positioning and they end up building one of the stickiest products in the world. Yeah. Cool. Well, April, it's been a pleasure chatting to you today. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. and yes, this uh, was
1: great. I loved it. Yeah,
0: and I definitely advise any of the listeners like to check out the book, obviously awesome, again, like how to nail product positioning so your customers get it, buy it, love it. Like, uh, And if there's one thing that's going to help you with your churn is making sure that you're aligning your positioning with what your product actually delivers and the value that it has. Uh, so thanks again, uh, April, and uh, wish you a good rest of the week.
1: Okay, that's great. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Pleasure. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you are able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts and more subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm also don't forget to subscribe to our show on itunes google play or wherever you listen to your podcasts if you have any feedback good or bad i would love to hear from you and you can provide your blunt direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm lastly but most importantly if you enjoyed this episode please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.